The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a National Democratic Party strategist, a columnist for The Hill in Washington, D.C., and a political commentator for news radio stations KNX in Los Angeles and WGN in Chicago. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. If you want to uh, find out more about my political polling company, or if you have any ideas or any suggestions for Deadline DC, the best way to reach me is on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Brad Bannon, all one word. Today, we're going to discuss two breaking news events. In the first half hour, our guest is Dr. Bob Bollinger of John Hopkins Medical School, who's going to discuss the, uh, the rapid spread of the Delta variant. Then in the second half hour, we're going to discuss the chaos in Afghanistan with our national security expert, Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired. Uh, but first, we're going to play this clip from uh, the director of the National Institute of Health, Francis Collins, on the potential spread of the Delta variant in schools. Masks for these kids when they're in the school. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is leading the charge. Here he was this week, sir. If you're coming after the rights of parents in Florida, I'm standing in your way. I'm not going to let you get away with it. How strong is the case that children in school should wear masks as a mitigation against Delta? Chris, it's very strong. Uh, go to the CDC website. You'll see more than a dozen publications showing that evidence. And already you can see in this country the schools that have started to open without mask requirements. Outbreaks are happening. And what happens then? The kids are sent home for virtual learning, which is what we were trying to avoid it's really unfortunate that politics and polarization have gotten in the way of a simple public health measure. This mask that I'm holding has somehow become a symbol that it never should have been. This is basically just a life-saving medical device. And somehow it's now being seen as an invasion of your personal liberty. We never should have gone there. It's heartbreaking for me as a person who's not a politician. I'm a scientist. I'm a public health person. I'm a doctor to see how masks have gotten into this very strange place with parents and uh, others shouting about it. We never should have allowed that to happen. Our guest in this half hour is Dr. Bob Bollinger professor of infectious diseases at the John Hopkins University School of Medicine. He holds joint appointments in international health at the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and in the Community Public Health uh, School of Nursing. Uh, Dr. Bollinger has more than 39 years of experience in international public health, 
clinical research and education. Uh, Dr. Bollinger, uh, welcome back to the show. You know, I love having you on the show, especially since I know you're very busy these days, but I almost hate to have you on the show because it usually indicates that we're facing some kind of crisis. Uh, before we get to this, could, do you want to comment on uh, the uh, clip we just played from, uh, I presume, Dr. Collins, who's the uh, director of the National Institute of Health on masks in, uh, in publics and schools? So thanks, Brad. It's, uh, and thanks for, for allowing me to be here again. Um, listen, I, I agree with everything that Francis Collins just said. I mean, um, you know, we have to find a way to make schools safer for kids uh, and uh, for, 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 you know, teachers and the staff. And the way we do that is we get everybody who's eligible vaccinated. And while this Delta variant is raging, everybody wear masks. It's, it's there uh, not to break, not to be uh, um, in conflict with somebody's liberty, but, but to give people, uh, particularly children at great risk, um, the safe environment that they need to learn. And that's what we have to do. It's just hard. It's heartbreaking as well to see uh, what's happening, and not just in the schools, but in these communities where Delta's raging. Well, let's uh, talk about that. Could you give us a status update? Uh, it, it seems to me, well, may, maybe I'm overstating things, but if I am, you can correct me. Uh, you know, a lot of people, and maybe they're right, uh, think we're just going back to the bad old days uh, of earlier this year. We've got this uh, deadly Delta variant spreading across the country, especially in the South and the West, where there are large numbers of unvaccinated people. Uh, what is the current status of, of the new outbreak? I guess this is the fourth surge uh, I read somewhere. Could you comment on the status where we are now? Well, as you pointed out, we're in the fourth surge. Uh, it's being driven by this Delta variant, which is um, about twice as infectious as the, the, the so-called alpha variants that we had earlier in the, in the pandemic a year or so ago. So it's very, very infectious. Um, and it is finding its way to the unvaccinated population, um, both those who have um, not been vaccinated and could be vaccinated, as well as those who can't be vaccinated, young kids. It's finding... It's finding that population causing a lot of infections. We went from, you know, somewhere around 20,000 total infections a day on average just a few weeks ago. Now we're over 120,000. I mean, it's just remarkable increases. And when you have increased cases, uh, particularly in populations that are older, you're going to have increased hospitalizations and deaths. And that's exactly, unfortunately, what we're seeing. And it's, it's preventable. I mean, that's what's so tragic about this. Vaccines reduce hospitalizations and death by over 95%. And, um, you know, it's just so heartbreaking to see people end up in the hospital in the middle of this epidemic when we have a way to prevent it. Um, maybe I'm asking you to speculate here, but why is there, have there been any studies done that show why some people are so resistant to vaccination? It just seems like the height of idiocy to me uh, <clears throat> that people aren't getting vaccinated. 
you know, not only do they risk getting sick, they pose a danger to other people. Uh, have there been any research on why there's so much resistance? I mean, the vaccination rate in some states, I read in, I think it was Louisiana, that only 37 percent of the adults in Louisiana have been fully vaccinated. Yeah, it's it's a really important and difficult question, Brad. As you know, look, we've had people hesitant to be vaccinated even long long before COVID vaccines were around, right? Where there's always been a population that's been resistant to all vaccinations. What we're seeing now, though, I think is is uh, unprecedented, and that's because uh, so many people are resistant to getting a vaccine that's clearly life saving, not just for them but for their family members and their community. I think there are lots of reasons for it. Um, you know. Uh, for the same reasons we're getting debates around whether masks um, are uh, something that we should be allowing uh, kids and, and teachers to, to wear in classrooms. Um, it's become politicized, and that's, that's really just tragic and unfortunate. Some of that is being driven by misinformation. Some of it's being driven by skepticism and lack of trust of, of scientists and lack of trust of people who are trying to convince them to be vaccinated. So there are lots of reasons for it. Yeah, it's really I it, heartbreaking is a good way to describe it. I, you know, I've seen or read these stories about people who didn't vac uh, didn't get vaccinated, uh, go to the hospital uh, to be treated for the virus, uh, and saying, "God, I wish I had got vaccinated," but it, by you know th by that time it's too late. It's it just is tragic. It's very uh, tragic and heartbreaking. I wish, you know, I when vaccination started last year, uh, many millions of Americans rushed out uh, to get their vaccinations as quickly as possible. Uh, I know I did. Uh, and if I didn't want to, I would have got it anyway, because my daughter had kept calling me every five minutes to see if I uh, scheduled a vaccination. And my first shot uh, took, uh, I was in line for three or four hours to get the vaccination at a state site. Uh, and boy, and then the second time was easier. But, you know, millions of Americans stood in line for hours to get their vaccination. And here you have uh, these other people who just don't want to get vaccinated. Uh, we're going to go to break now. Our guest in this half hour is Dr. Bob Bollinger from the John Hopkins School of Medicine. Uh, we'll be right back uh, to talk about the spread of the virus uh, and what we can do to prevent it uh, after these messages. We'll be back with more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon right after these messages. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is Dr. Bob Bollinger uh, from uh, John Hopkins University School of Medicine. Uh, I wrote about the uh, spread of the Delta var variant in Florida this week in my column on the Hill. Uh, and in my opinion, 
Uh, it's shameful what's going on there. The governor, uh, Ron DeSantis, is doing everything he can uh, to discourage people from wearing masks, it seems to me. Uh, anyway, if you'd like to read my column on the spread of the Delta variant in Florida, uh, you can read it. Uh, go to muckrack.com. That's N-U-C-K-R-A-C-K dot com front slash Brad dash Bannon. You can read my column on the Delta variant variant in Florida and all my other columns for the Hill. I want to welcome back our radio audience. Um, if you're li- if you're listening, but you'd like to watch the show without uh, the breaks for radio silence, uh, you can see us on Periscope TV at www.periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. You can watch us on Facebook Live at www.tinyurl.com front slash BB Facebook Live. And finally, on YouTube at www.tinyurl.com front slash Brad on YouTube. Uh, Dr. Bollinger. There, I, I've read a few stories, and maybe you can comment on this. Uh, you know, some people are playing up cases uh, where people who have been immunized are coming down, uh, coming down with uh, COVID or the Delta variant. Uh, does that ha- is that happening at all, or does it happen frequently, or what? What is the story on that? Well, I mean, it's happening in free- very, very infrequently, um, and greater than 90% of all the hospitalizations and deaths in the United States from COVID uh, right now are due to or, or in unvaccinated people. We've had over 610,000, I believe, deaths already in the United States in unvaccinated people. Um, and so while these vaccine breakthroughs uh, in hospitalizations occur, they're very rare, uh, and we're actually... Uh, when we do see them, they're almost uh, they're very frequently in people that have immune issues, you know, people that have cancer or transplant uh, issues who who perhaps aren't uh, able to to mount a response to any vaccine that's strong enough, uh, not just the COVID vaccine. So they're so those are vulnerable people, just like the young kids are unvaccinated, and we need to be the rest of us need to be vaccinated, masked to protect those vulnerable people, um, including those that are fully vaccinated but might have an immune issue that they have to deal with. Uh, This is one of those questions I probably don't even want to ask, but I do anyway. Uh, We have this Delta variant, which you said is twice as infectious as the initial uh, COVID virus. Is there anything else coming down the pike or, uh, you know, after the the Delta variant? Oh, of course there is. I'm I'm concerned with with our inability to to come around um, and support masking and vaccination, we're going to see more variants eventually. I mean, we're going to run out of Greek letters. I mean, this, <laughs> this virus uh, mutates every time it replicates. It has an opportunity to mutate. So, um, you know, that's, why, that's another reason why we have to get everybody vaccinated in masks so we can reduce the risk that some even more difficult variant might, uh, might develop. Uh, uh, and that's the biggest issue. Uh, have there been an up? I've read somewhere there has there been an uptick in vaccinations in the last couple of weeks uh, because of the threat people feel by the Delta variant. Well, we've certainly seen some evidence of that, fortunately, but, but uh, in some of the places that are really getting hit hard in the South, and that's a good thing. 
remember, it takes six weeks to develop immunity that's sufficient to protect you from hospitalization. So I'm glad people are getting vaccinated now, but imagine how many fewer people would be hospitalized and have died in those communities had they been vaccinated a couple of months ago. More than 90% of the deaths in those communities right now what could have been prevented if those people had been vaccinated two months ago. And Boy, uh, so we've got to, you know, we've, and it's a shame people have to wait to see their own family members and neighbors and friends end up in the hospital and dying to get them to be vaccinated. And I worry what's going to happen um, when the schools fully open up. You know, the kids are at lower risk from getting sick, but some of them are end up in the hospital. A lot of the IC, pediatric ICUs are filling up simply because there's so many more kids at risk. I mean, who's getting infected now and getting sick are unvaccinated people who tend to be younger. That's all you have to do is look at the average age of people being admitted to the hospital and cope with COVID now. It's gone way down. Why? It's not rocket science. The majority of people over the age of 60 are now fully vaccinated. And those less than 50 and 60, particularly uh, younger people, are less likely to be fully vaccinated. So those are the ones who are ending up in the hospital. And that's going to continue to be an issue um, for the unvaccinated young young people, unfortunately. You know, I read a story about a school district in the South. Of course, many of them have already started school. Uh, and I read a story about a, a school district in the South. They brought the kids back into class at the beginning of the school year. Um, and then after a week, they sent them back home, back to virtual learning because of outbreak of the variant. Are we, go are we going to see more of that as schools in the rest of the country open up? Absolutely, as long as they're unmasked. You know, anybody who's recommending not masking students uh, in you know classrooms uh, with students and, and, and faculty and, and teachers, Anybody who's recommending against the masking is, is promoting hospitalization, infection, and death. Not in just those kids, but the family members that they might bring it home to. So we're absolutely going to see it, particularly in places that don't have uh, masking guidelines for those schools and classrooms. Let me but, ask you. Oh, go, uh, I was going to say, that, again, just another tragedy. Yeah, I mean, it really Totally is. preventable tragedy for these. These kids deserve uh, and their families deserve a safe place to learn. People are dying, dying needlessly, and it's it's an awful tragedy. Let me ask you this question, doctor. L let's say we somehow get through this crisis. What what are the you know what should we be thinking if we get back? Hopefully, we'll get through this crisis. But if we do, what we should we should be thinking about the future in terms of healthcare policy? We've got about a minute left. Well, listen, there have been some really hard lessons learned, right, uh, through this process. Uh, we've certainly learned what we've known for a long time is that our essential workers, the people that, um, that, we, that we need the most in the society, are at high risk for these kinds of situations. Um, uh, you know, communities that lack access to health care uh, are the ones at greatest risk. Um, and, and that's a lesson we should be uh, addressing. We should have been addressing before this and now particularly need to. I think we have to be better prepared for this next time. We've got to have better communication and find a way to get beyond this politicization um, of the of health method messages and public health messages. And we have to reinvest in public health. We have to reinvest in, in, in the public health strategies 
for other diseases yeah, as well. We do. Uh, Dr. Bollinger, thank you very much for joining us again. I know you must be very busy, so we truly appreciate you uh, coming on uh, the show to uh, discuss this problem. Uh, and I don't know how to say this politely, but I, I hope we don't have to talk to you again soon. Brad, thanks very much. Okay, but I fear we will. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Bollinger. We're going to break now. We'll be back with more of Deadline DC after these messages. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. Today we're covering breaking news stories. We talked about the spread of the Delta variant in the first half hour. And in this half hour, we're going to discuss Afghanistan. We're going to start the show by playing some clips. Uh, then, if time permits, we're going to bring on our national security uh, expert, uh, Colonel Cedric Layton. Uh, let's start with the first clip. The first clip uh, is from CNN. Uh, it's a report from CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, uh, about conditions on the ground in Afghanistan where the Taliban have already taken over, which I guess is most of the country now. As soon as we leave our compound, it's clear who is now in charge. Taliban fighters have flooded the capital. Smiling and victorious, they took this city of six million people in a matter of hours, barely firing a shot. This is a sight I honestly thought I would never see. Scores of Taliban fighters and just behind us, the U.S. Embassy compound. Some carry American weapons. They tell us they're here to maintain law and order. Everything is under control. Everything will be fine, the commander says. Nobody should worry. What's your message to America right now? America already spent enough time in Afghanistan. They need to leave, he tells us. They already lost lots of lives and lots of money. People come up to them to pose for photographs. death to America, but they seem friendly at the same time. It's utterly bizarre. At the presidential palace, the Taliban are now guarding the gate. They say they're here to fill the vacuum left when the government fled. But the welcoming spirit only extends so far, and my presence soon creates tension. They've just told me to stand to the side because I'm a woman. Outside, ordinary Afghans clamored to talk to us, struggling to process the dizzying speed of Kabul's fall. Actually, I feel nothing right now. We want peace. Uh, we are tired of uh, this uh, ongoing war. What does the future look like to you now? You know, uh, I cannot predict even in seconds right now, uh, and I can't predict even minutes right now. Uh, so that's why I don't know what will, uh, uh, what will happen tomorrow and what will happen after. And that's really what it feels like on the ground. Honestly, John and Brianna, it's anyone's guess as to what the situation on the ground will look like in two hours, let alone two days, two months. And that profound sense of anxiety, I think you may not see it on the streets, but it's the people who aren't on the streets today that in some ways are the real story. The people that are hiding in their homes, who are petrified to go out, who are worried about being targeted, who fear for their lives, who are too scared 
to tell their stories, but their stories must be told because in this moment, their fear and their desperation is so real, as we saw with those extraordinary images coming from the airport that I don't think any of us will be able to forget anytime soon, John and Brianna. Clarissa, talk more about that. Who is on the streets and who isn't? And what happens if someone does want to try to go to the airport at this point and get out? So mainly on the street, I would say it's Taliban and it's it's hard to show you, but they're literally everywhere. They're over there. They're over there. They're over there. They're everywhere. Uh, and that's how they're able to implement force, uh, implement security, because people are so scared of them. No one is going to fight the Taliban. Then you also have some men on the streets. You have some kids. I have seen a few women, but I will say I have seen far fewer women than I would ordinarily see walking down the streets of Kabul. And the women that you do see walking down the streets of Kabul tend to be dressed more conservatively than they were when they were walking down the streets of Kabul yesterday. I've seen more burqas today than I had seen in a while. Obviously, I am dressed in a very different way to how I would normally dress to walk down the streets of Kabul. So there's a lot of children as well. I think they're more curious than anything else. And, you know, it's important to remember as well, the Taliban does have to many people this bizarre sort of mystique, John. People are intrigued by them. Some people here genuinely see them as heroes. And so it's a very odd cocktail that you find on the streets of Kabul with so many people hiding and other people peeking out to see what comes next and nobody really knowing what on earth to expect. There, we're understanding, you know, it's hard, it's hard to see how those folks who are holed up can get out, even if they are perhaps, uh, you know, candidates for getting out, Clarissa. Some of them may qualify for P1 or P2 visas. I know personally of people who are awaiting status checks on those applications and it appeared that they would be able to get out of Kabul, but now Kabul has fallen. Uh, it doesn't appear that there is a plan for the U.S. government to provide safe passage for many of those people from their homes where they're holed up to the airport. Can they get out without that, Clarissa? The problem you have now, there's definitely no plan in place to try to evacuate these people safely, okay? The U.S. is really barely able to keep a hold on the situation at the airport right now, let alone trying to extend some kind of uh, corridor for people to leave through. So that is simply out of the question. The other problem you have is that there's this crush of humanity descending on the airport. Uh, vehicles clogging both lanes of traffic, scenes of, of people firing in the air to stop a sort of stampede almost. People have been shot by stray bullets. It's, it's absolute pandemonium at the airport. And if you don't have your visa ready, if you don't have your passport ready, because a lot of people were trying to prepare for this moment, Brianna. We saw it yesterday, long lines outside the passport office, but no one imagine that it would happen this quickly, that they would have a matter of hours to pack up their lives, get together their paperwork, book a ticket, get to the airport. I mean, it's completely unfeasible for the vast majority of Afghans. And so they are now left in this desperate situation, petrified for their lives. They are being assured officially by the Taliban that there is a blanket amnesty even for people who worked with the government, even for people who worked with security forces. But it doesn't take a genius to realize that for a lot of people, 
they're too scared to believe that. They have huge reservations. And so they are now hunkered down, waiting for more clarity, waiting for more guidance from the U.S. as to how their paperwork will be expedited, how they can get safely out of the country. And in this moment, there's not a huge amount of information coming through to them. So it's a desperate situation. And that's what you don't see on the streets. That's the story that's happening behind closed doors. I feel for the people of Afghanistan, what they've gone through in the last 40 years, I wouldn't wish on anybody. Our next clip is from uh, Joe Biden's Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, talking about the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan. Look, you told me a few months ago on this program that you thought it was entirely likely that the Taliban would be taking over the country. But President Biden, just last month, quote, the likelihood there's going to be the Taliban overrunning everything and owning the whole country is highly unlikely. He was wrong. Jake, what we've done, what the president has done, is make sure that we were able to adjust to anything happening on the ground. Uh, and the fact that, we, that he sent additional forces in, we had those forces at the ready, fully prepared to go in the event uh, that this moved in a direction where we needed forces in place to ensure that our personnel was safe and secure, uh, to ensure also that we could do everything possible to bring out of Afghanistan those Afghans most at risk. That's exactly what we're doing. Why didn't you uh, have the troops in there and then let that happen first before taking them out? Again, I come back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, which is that that status quo I, was not sustainable. Uh, like it or not, uh, there was an agreement that the forces would come out on May 1st. Had they not, had we not begun that process, which is what the president did, uh, and the Taliban saw, then we would have been back at war with the Taliban. And we would have been back uh, at war uh, with tens of thousands of troops having to go in because the 2,500 troops we had there and the air power would not have sufficed to deal with the situation, especially as we see, uh, alas, the hollowness of the, uh, the Afghan security forces. And by the way, from the perspective of our strategic competitors around the world, there's nothing they would like more than to see us in Afghanistan for another 5, 10, 20 years. It's simply not in the national interest. But with this troop surge to airlift Americans out of Afghanistan, aren't we already in the midst of a Saigon moment? No, we're not. Remember, uh, this is not Saigon. We went to Afghanistan 20 years ago with one mission, and that mission was to deal with the folks who attacked us on 9-11. And we have succeeded in that mission. The objective that we set, bringing uh, those who attacked us to justice, uh, making sure that they couldn't attack us again from Afghanistan, we've succeeded in that mission. Uh, and in fact, we succeeded a while ago. Uh, and at the same time, uh, remaining in Afghanistan um, for another one, five, ten years is not in the national interest. You know, the British were there for a long time in the 19th century. Uh, the Russians were there for a long time in the 20th century. We've now been there twice as long as the Russians. And how that's in our national interest, uh, I don't see. And as I mentioned a moment ago, I think most of our strategic competitors around the world would like nothing better than for us to remain in Afghanistan uh, for another year, five years, ten years and have uh, those resources dedicated uh, to being in the midst of a civil war. It's simply not in our interest. We'll be right back with more Deadline DC with Colonel Cedric Layton to talk about Afghanistan right after these messages. Okay, welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Afghanistan in this segment. Uh, we're going to lead off uh, with a clip from uh, former President Trump uh, 
talking about how he paved the way for the withdrawal. I started the process. All the troops are coming back home. They couldn't stop the press. 21 years is enough, don't we think? 21 years. They couldn't stop the process. They wanted to, but it was very tough to stop the process when other things were out. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's a shame. 21 years by a government that wouldn't last. The only way they last is if we're there. What are we going to say? We'll stay for another 21 years, then we'll stay for another 50. The whole thing is ridiculous. So we're bringing our troops back home. Okay, that was former President Trump talking about the uh, uh, setting up the withdrawal uh, of the United States troops from Afghanistan. Our guest in this uh, segment is Cedric Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force, retired. Uh, He's just fresh off an appearance on CNN uh, discussing uh, the situation in Afghanistan. He is the founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates, a strategic risk and leadership consultancy serving global companies and organizations. He founded his company after serving in the U.S. Air Force for 26 years as an intelligence officer in the Middle East. Uh, his Twitter handle is at Cedric Layton, C-E-D-R-I-C-L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N. Uh, his website is CedricLayton.com. Colonel Layton, uh, thanks very much for joining us. I'm, I'm going to ask you a, a question. You know, this is a very chaotic, chaotic uh, withdrawal, uh, even if it was inevitable. You know, what can we learn from this tragic episode the last, you know, 20 years in Afghanistan that would help inform a more sensible U.S. uh, national security policy in the future so this doesn't happen again? Oh, there's so many things, Brad. You know, it's uh, it kind of brings to mind, uh, you know, some old adages about getting stuck in in the mud in so many different areas. And what Afghanistan was was basically a, a situation that we got stuck in, that we got mired in. And you have to look at it as, uh, you know, I think in two phases. I certainly uh, was very supportive of the action going into Afghanistan in the wake of 9-11 almost 20 years ago, uh, because we needed to do something uh, against Taliban uh, who had harbored al-Qaeda. Of course, primarily the foe should have been al-Qaeda. But, uh, you know, if you if you are a host of something like that, uh, then you also bear some responsibility. Uh, I didn't have a problem with that aspect of it. But what I did have a problem with was our failure to understand the many local cultures in a very complicated place like Afghanistan. Uh, all of that uh, is really a complexity that uh, we don't often plan for. And when it comes to the withdrawal, I think the biggest thing that we have to realize is that in a very chaotic place like like Afghanistan, it's going to be even more chaotic than we think it's going to be. So we have to plan for that. Uh, you know, the, the, in the military, there's this adage, uh, no good plan survives enemy contact. And uh, that is exactly what has happened here. We've had contact with the enemy, not a shooting enemy in this particular case, but we've had contact with the chaos of people, uh, you know, clamoring to get out, people trying to very desperately to cling to their their lives and, uh, and you know, make a way out of uh, what they perceive to be a very dangerous situation and the right to perceive it that way. Uh, but we are in a, in a situation where we have to uh, really pick and choose 
what how we get involved in places, why we get involved in those places, and have an exit strategy. We never had that exit strategy. You know, and I, I guess my next question is, why didn't we have an exit strategy? I mean, the reality is uh, the memories of Vietnam are still very fresh, uh, especially with uh, Americans, baby boomers especially. Uh, we had, uh, it was a mess in Iraq after we deposed Saddam Hussein, and it still is from what I see. And now we have this, uh, you know, this chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. And, and it seems to me there's plenty of blame to pass around here from one presidential administration to another. Uh, but, you know, why don't we see how these things end and plan for them? I mean, what, you, we're not very know, good at we avoid this in the future because we seem to be making the same mistake over and over again. Yeah, we're not very good at that crystal ball, you know, Brad. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, first of all, we have to learn that, you know, while history may not repeat itself directly uh, every time, it certainly rhymes. And the lessons from Vietnam, the lessons from other insurgencies, um, the lessons from Iraq, the lessons from the first part of Afghanistan, all of those could come together and inform how we decide these things. Uh, but I think one of the big problems is we tend to, as a society, uh, and the military, you know, is an aspect is is part of our society, we tend to look at things the way we think they should be looked at. And we don't put ourselves in the shoes of other people. We don't anticipate that other people, even if they are dressed in clothes that uh, you know looks to us like it's from the ninth century, uh, we don't expect them to be smart. The real answer is those people are incredibly smart. They're incredibly adaptive. Uh, they know their terrain. They understand the cultures. Uh, and they're willing to do things that we're not willing to do necessarily. And we all have to take that into account as we start planning for for these efforts. In uh, when it comes to you know figuring out the end state, uh, we tend to go in based on the orders that were given by the president at the time we as military people, and uh, we should, and the schools teach us, uh, to look for the end state. What's our way out? How to? How do we achieve victory? How, what happens if there's a stalemate? You know, all of those kinds of things. But then when it comes to practice, we don't really practice it as much as we should or as well as we should. Is there anything we can do uh, in terms of the national security establishment, which, you know, includes uh, the president, the Defense Department, the military to institutionalize uh, these, uh, uh, you know, to take a more systemic view of whether we make a commitment to make the kind of military commitment we did in uh, Vietnam or Iraq or Afghanistan? Is there something we can do to improve the institutional memory of the way we make decisions? We thought we had done that in the wake of Vietnam. Uh, and there was a lot of, um, there was a big effort to reform particularly the army, but the other services did, did some of that as well. And, uh, you know, what uh, it needs, you know, what the whole national security apparatus needs is kind of a, a fresh approach, fresh thinking, uh, in that you take lessons from the past, they inform what you're doing at present and what you plan to do in the future. And the other thing you have to realize is that every time you plan to do something like, uh, you know, the pivot to Asia Pacific or the pivot, uh, you know, to another part of the world, you always 
got to expect that there's going to be something else that's going to happen. And you have to be able to handle at least two different crises in two different parts of the world, in two different or more mission areas. So, you know, you can have one thing that deals with conventional forces, like let's say a, a conflict, a potential conflict with China. Uh, and another thing uh, that would be an Afghanistan-like conflict where you're dealing with an insurgency. And we have forces that can handle each of those, but we don't resource them in a way that uh, the experts in each of those areas are getting getting the same amount of attention uh, from the national leadership, such as the president or the secretary of defense. Uh, and that, that I think is also a problem. So there are institutional barriers uh, to this kind of change, but this kind of change is absolutely necessary if we're going to stay a great power. Well, you know, I, I certainly hope so, Cedric, because I, we lost, I, I think, uh, 20, uh, you know, more than 2000 American combat troops were killed in Afghanistan. We spent something on the order of two trillion dollars, which we don't have, didn't have to spend anyway. Uh, and we just can't repeat, you know, the same mistake over and over again, because uh, this is a tragedy. Uh, let me ask you a quick question. What are the national security ramifications of the t Taliban takeover of Afghanistan? Well, the Taliban has friends. Uh, those friends include Pakistan. Uh, to some extent, the Chinese seem to be more friendly to them. Uh, to some extent, the Russians and uh, at times the Iranians. Uh, so the, Afghanistan has become a springboard potentially for these powers to do their thing, to uh, diminish U.S. influence. And also it's become a potential springboard for terrorist groups uh, once again. So we're getting back to a pre-2001 type possibility. Hasn't happened yet, uh, but it could very easily happen. And we have to be very careful with that. I think we're going to have to have you on again, Colonel Layton, to discuss the national implications, uh, security implications, since we're running out of time. Uh, I want to thank our both our guests today, Dr. Bob Bollinger from John Hopkins University School of Medicine, who talked about the spread of the Delta variant, and of course, Colonel uh, Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired, who joined us to discuss Afghanistan. Uh, I'll see you again next Monday at 3 p.m. live or the podcast anytime at periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. <laughs>